This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the credit card that's there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is Planet Money from NPR. Okay, the name of the game is Monopoly. Do you all know how to play the game? No. Yes. No. What? Okay. I think that we should review the game. No, I know the game, don't worry. I tried playing Monopoly with my nephews recently. Hello, I'm Ali. I'm Zaid. I'm Taha. And they had a lot of questions. Wait, we can steal? What do they mean by mortgage? No, 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 you can't steal. Well, how much is the rent? Questions that feel much bigger than a board game. There are the obvious things Monopoly teaches you. How to negotiate, how to manage your cash flow, how to diversify your assets, like owning homes and hotels. And then there are the implicit things. The idea that anyone with just a little bit of cash can rise from rags to riches in this country. This rags to riches narrative is even part of the game's origin story. At one point, this story was included in every box of Monopoly. That a man named Charles Darrow was unemployed and came up with a game to pass the time. In 1934, he brought Monopoly to the game company, Parker Brothers, hoping to make some money off of it. He became a millionaire. But... There is another origin story, a very different one, that promotes a very different image of capitalism. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Amanda Aronchik. And I'm Rand Abdel-Fattah. Rand is one of the hosts of NPR's Throughline podcast. Today on the show, how a critique of capitalism grew from a seed of an idea in a rebellious young woman's mind into a game legendary for its celebration of wealth, no matter the cost. For this episode, we are going to hand over the mic to Rund and to our co-host at Throughline, Ramtin Arablui, to tell us the fraught origin story of this famous board game. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. It's 1879 in a small town in Illinois where 13-year-old Lizzie McGee is curled up next to the fire with a book her father gave her. Progress and Poverty by Henry George. Lizzie had to stop going to school. Her family was struggling, never having recovered from the recession six years earlier. And as she dives into this book, the world begins to make a little more sense to her. The great cause of inequality in the distribution of wealth is inequality in the ownership of land. The ownership of land is the great fundamental fact, which ultimately determines the social, the political, and consequentially the intellectual and moral condition of people. Henry George is pretty much the equivalent of a rock star. 
He'd started forming his ideas about the pitfalls of extreme wealth while traveling around the world to places like Australia and India. What is the current explanation of the hard times? Overproduction. There are so many clothes that men must go ragged, so much coal that in the bitter winters people have to shiver, such overfilled granaries that people actually die by starvation. Want due to overproduction? Was a greater absurdity ever uttered? How can there be overproduction till all have enough? It's really important to understand that in the United States, after the Civil War at this time, there was an incredible amount of wealth being created that hadn't been seen in this country anymore. And you had a very, you had a handful of people who were controlling it. Mary Pillon is a journalist who covers sports and business. She wrote a book about the history of Monopoly. And George is asking questions about all this money is now coming in. Our country was ripped apart and now it's, you know, we're rebuilding. And how does, how is it distributed? And what is the government's role in, you know, taking a cut? Or, you know, how does that, how does that pan out? A growing number of Americans were fed up with the monopolies of the so-called Gilded Age. Railroads, sugar, oil, and the growing riches of the elite few, the Vanderbilts, Carnegies, and Rockefellers. The vicious, the ignorant, and the millionaires. Lizzie's dad, James McGee, a staunch progressive who traveled with Abraham Lincoln during the Lincoln-Douglas debates, strongly backed the ideas of Henry George. We cannot shut our eyes to the fact that all over the country there is a feeling of restlessness and discontent among working men on account of their supposed meager pay compared with the wealth which they produce. He understood that wealth and owning land were deeply connected. Whoever owned the land made the profits and maintained all the power. And he made sure that his daughter, Lizzie, knew it too. Not just by giving her books, but by encouraging her to live a life that transcended the societal norms of the time. And she did. Professionally, she got a job as a sonographer. She dabbled in engineering and invented a whole new tool for sonography— which she went and got patented under her name. So she was absolutely a trailblazer. Throughout all her adventures, Lizzie kept going back to the ideas of Henry George, to the book her father gave her all those years ago. She became friends with Henry George's son and became the secretary of the Women's Single Tax Club of Washington, a club dedicated to advancing George's central theory on how to solve inequality. As I say, the man that owns the land is the master of those who must live on it. So the single tax theory, the general idea, was that you had a land value tax, also known as a single tax. And the general idea is to tax land and only land. So then that shifts the tax burden to wealthy landlords. Uh, Anybody who lives in New York or Los Angeles or a high-rent neighborhood, I'm sure, is kind of nodding, nodding their head at that. Nodding head. And that message really resonated with Americans in the late 1800s because, you know, this is at a time when poverty and squalor are very much on display in urban centers. And that's part of why I think he had such a big audience. And they sometimes called themselves the anti-monopolists. Um, those were people who wanted to break apart monopolies, break apart these, you know, concentrations of power, whether it's railroads, banking, steel. Um, and this continues on and on. The monopoly of the land gone, there need be no fear of large fortunes. For when everyone gets what he fairly earns, no one can get more than he fairly earns. How many men are there who fairly earn a million dollars? 
It's about income inequality. It's about how do we tax people? How are the wealthy treated? How, what are we doing for those who are in poverty? Henry George died in 1897, but his followers made sure his ideas would live on. And as for Lizzie McGee, she turned to the latest fad to get his message across. Board games. Be a winner at the game of life. Find a job. I'm a doctor. Have money, maybe. Get married. Around this time, Americans were getting really into board games, like the game of life. I win the lottery. Yes, the game of life that's still around today, but not quite the same. The Game of Life had been around for a while at that point. Um, That was a game that was published by Milton Bradley. And The Game of Life is, the original version is very dark. It's, It's very much about teaching kids about the morality of the world. Mary writes that the board had an intemperance space that led to poverty, a government contract space that led to wealth, and a gambling space that led to ruin. The game these days has almost none of that. But it still imparts a particular message of what one should expect out of life. A car, a job, a marriage, kids, and a house. With the single tax theory in mind, Lizzie McGee invented what she called the landlord's game. The very first version of Monopoly. She gets her patent for the landlord's game, which is Monopoly, in 1904. It's striking how similar it is to what we know as Monopoly today. You've got the railroads. Obviously, you don't have cars quite the same way, so we don't have free parking, but you have park, which again, parks and land is a huge deal for Georgia's. And you have properties, and you go around and around. The object of the game is to obtain as much wealth or money as possible. When a player stops upon a lot owned by another player, he must pay the rent to the owner. The player who has the largest sum total is the winner. But there is one major difference from the Monopoly game we all know and play today. When Lizzie creates the game, she makes two rule sets. She makes a monopolist rule set and an anti-monopolist rule set. The anti-monopolist version rewarded every player when wealth was created. All for one, one for all kind of thing. While the monopolist set rewarded individual players who created monopolies to crush opponents. And the monopolist rule set is the version that ends up kind of taking hold among progressives. It was played by a who's who of left-wing America. It was played at several Ivy League schools. It was played by Scott Nearing, who's a famous socialist professor at Wharton. Um, And it was played by Upton Sinclair himself, who obviously, you know, the jungle is very much a, you know, kind of the quintessential muckraking critique of a lot of what, what is going on in the country at the time. It spread like wildfire. And the game started to change depending on where you played. People localized the boards and made them their own. So if you were playing in Boston, you would have the Commons on there. If you were playing in New York, you would have Broadway. If you were in Chicago, you would have the Loop. So she is very much about, you know, creating a game that has kind of these core ingredients, these core rules and instructions, but also encourages people to, you know, in terms of the tokens, use what you have around the house, make the game your own. And that's pretty interesting, right? And that's very different than what we kind of think of as games now, which is like you go to a mass market, a big box retailer, or you buy it online and they all come the same. She, you know, games at that time, mass manufacturing wasn't quite the same as it is now. So she also kind of cooks into this idea of making it your own. 
With people inventing their own hometown versions of the game, cash wasn't exactly pouring into Lizzie's bank account. She wasn't making money off the patent, and she wasn't getting known. But the game sure was, being played and reinterpreted everywhere. In the 1930s, Atlantic City was the place for summer vacation. It was known for its nightlife. At the same time, it was home to a sizable Quaker community who were maybe not so into all the vice, but were really into Monopoly. The game was gripping, fun, and a social event that drew friends together. A Quaker family based in Atlantic City began to share and make copies of their homemade board based on their neighborhood with friends and even local hotels. It was spreading, and there were even spinoffs. And one of the people who gets exposed to the game is a man named Charles Darrow. Charles Darrow was a self-described practical engineer from Philadelphia, a city not far from Atlantic City. A lot of people were coming and going from Atlantic City and Philadelphia at the time. One day, Darrow's wife Esther runs into her old friend Charles Todd. They'd gone to Quaker school together, but had lost touch. They make plans to have dinner with their spouses, really fun night. And after dinner, Charles Todd suggests they come to his house sometime. Hey, why don't you come over and we'll have a Monopoly night? So they come over, they play the game. And then later, Darrow asks Todd, hey, that game was really fun. Can you type up the rules for me? When we come back, Charles Darrow takes the game and runs. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Babson College. Discover Babson College's Master of Science and Management in Entrepreneurial Leadership Program, an intensive nine-month journey that equips recent college graduates with practical skills for today's dynamic business landscape. Tackle real-world challenges and emerge with a problem-solving mindset. Whether you choose to start your own business or innovate within a corporation, a master's from Babson will help launch your career forward. Apply today at babson.edu slash msleader. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. We left off with Charles Darrow learning to play Monopoly with Charles Todd, who learned in Atlantic City. After that game, Darrow asks Todd to type up the rules. And Todd thinks this is really weird, because at this point the game's been around for 30 years or so. But he does it anyway. Darrow then takes those rules and starts redesigning the board. He has a cartoonist friend help him with illustrations. He starts marketing it a little bit. And eventually... He pitches the game to big game companies Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers. And he claims that he invented it. Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers weren't impressed and turned him down. Parker Brothers wrote back, Dear Mr. Darrow, our new games committee has carefully considered the game which you so kindly sent into us for examination. While the game no doubt contains considerable merit, we do not... They basically thought it was too complicated. But a few months later, they came back and said, wait, we do want it. And maybe they did. Or maybe they needed it. 
Parker Brothers is a company that is on the brink of destruction, like many companies. Um, there had just been a handover. George Parker hands over the reins to his son-in-law, Robert Barton, and they need a hit and they need it fast. And so they start selling Monopoly, and they're just as surprised as anybody that this game sells like gangbusters. Monopoly, the great financial game, is sweeping the country because it appeals to every American's love of bargain and business dealing. Give a Monopoly party and guests will want to play all night. And something really interesting happens then too, which is that Charles Darrow becomes part of the marketing of the game. At the time my brainchild was born, I was far more thoroughly unemployed than I even like to imagine now. Not only unemployed from a financial point of view, but a morale point of view. I simply had to have something to do. Nobody used to care who invented games, right? It's not like, oh, I'm gonna buy a book because it's by a certain author or see a movie because it has a certain star. But Darrow's Cinderella story, this fabricated notion that he goes into his basement and he's unemployed and trying to support his family and innovates. It has this eureka light bulb moment and creates this massive bestseller of a game. That is such a romantic story, even if it's not true. So this, the Darrow story captivates the country, as does the game. In some ways, it was the story the country needed at that time. The richest country in the world began a bitter journey downhill. The stock market buckled and crashed, and the nation's economy plummeted into the Depression. Jobs were scarce, poverty was rampant, and hope was hard to come by. By 1932, nearly one man out of four was unemployed. But here was this guy and this game keeping the so-called American dream alive. Charles Darrow does all these interviews, all these photo shoots where, you know, he's telling this Cinderella story. And they start to put it in the game itself. It's tucked in. It was tucked in the game I played. It was 1934, the height of the Great Depression, when Charles B. Darrow of Germantown, Pennsylvania, showed what he called the Monopoly game to the executives at Parker Brothers. And becomes part of the romance of the story, too. In its first year, 1935, the Monopoly game was the best-selling game in America. The rest, as they say, is history. If you think about the news industry, when you get an error and it gets picked up everywhere, it's very hard to course correct that, right? So especially back then, this is obviously way, way before the internet. So the story is all over the place. And Lizzie McGee catches wind of it. And she does not take this quietly. She calls up reporters with the Washington Evening Star and the Washington Post. And she does these interviews where she is holding up her games. And she says, I have patents. I made this game. I conceived of the game of landlord to interest people in the single tax plan of the great economist Henry George. Parker Brothers catches wind of Lizzie's noise. They get in touch and offer her $500 for the patent to the landlord's game, which is roughly 10 grand today. George Parker is on the verge of retirement, but to make this deal, he pays Lizzie a personal visit. And she's excited at first because she thinks, wow, my ideas, my idea, Henry George is long dead, but like my game and my invention is going to be out there and Parker Brothers is going to publish it. This is amazing. Two days after the agreement was signed, Lizzie sent a note to Parker Brothers. Farewell, my beloved brainchild. I regretfully part with you, but I am giving you to another who will be able to do more for you than I have done. I shall do all I can to add to your success and fame, which will, in some measure, add to my own. 
I charge you do not swerve from your high purpose and ultimate mission. Remember, the world expects much from you. Um, but there's no evidence they acknowledged her really as the inventor at all. And the Darrow story has taken hold. It is all over the place. Which is good and bad for Darrow. Because people who had been playing the game for decades at this point see this story being spun about this new game called Monopoly, invented by Charles Darrow, and they're like, huh? People start to write into Parker Brothers, and they're like, this guy didn't invent the game. Even Charles Todd, the person who taught Darrow how to play and wrote down the rules for him, wrote to Parker Brothers in disgust at Darrow's charade. Darrow didn't have anything to do with originating the game. He stole it. But his letter went unanswered. Parker Brothers doubled down on Darrow's Cinderella story. As for Lizzie McGee... Of all the hats she wore, of all the things that she did, she was a receptionist, she was a writer, she was a stenographer. She lists her occupation as maker of games, and her income is zero. She dies in 1948 with this, like, itty-bitty little obituary that you have to really look for. There wasn't a single mention of Monopoly in her obituary. And Charles Darrow gets, like, the New York Times treatment, hailing him as the inventor uh, when he passes, you know, decades later. Charles B. Darrow, who became a millionaire by inventing the game Monopoly, died at his Bucks County, Pennsylvania home yesterday at the age of 78. So they have very, very different fates as a result of what happens in the 1930s. And that could have been the end. Lizzie forgotten and Charles Darrow's false history living on. A very bleak finale to Lizzie's anti-capitalist monopoly. But Mary Pillon sees another legacy. The signs were everywhere, but now it's official we are in a recession. 27% drop in the number of homes sold last month compared to June. 27%. That is terrible news. But the question now, when will it end? It started in 2011, after the global financial crisis. The housing market had plummeted. The stock market was at its lowest since the Great Depression. And many people were fed up. Around the time I started getting interested in the story, Occupy Wall Street was something that I was covering. It's our duty as Americans to fight for our country and to keep it, you know, true to serving its people. And when it doesn't do that, it's immoral not to stand up and say something. And the Mr. Monopoly um, icon became, you know, very much used and loved by protesters as a critique of capitalism. And I thought, okay, now we've come full circle. Now, like, Monopoly and its iconography has become this, like, you know, symbol of Wall Street excess and things. And I think Lizzie would be proud of that. That was Mary Pilon. Her book is called The Monopolist, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal Behind the World's Favorite Board Game. This Planet Money episode was produced by Emma Peasley. It's an adaptation of a Throughline episode. For the rest of their episode, just look up Don't Pass Go from Throughline. And since they took over the episode today, we are going to throw to them to finish the credits. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablui. This episode was produced by me. And me and... 
Lawrence Wu, Lane Kaplan-Levinson, Julie Kane, Victor Ibeez, Anya Steinberg, Yolanda Sanguini, Casey Miner, Christina Kim, Devin Kadiyama, Amiri Tullin. Fact-checking for this episode was done by Kevin Vogel. Thank you to Monsi Karana, Steve Drummond, Lane Kaplan-Levinson, Devin Miller, Victor Ibeez, Dan Boyce, Alyssa Nadwarni, Joseph Haas, and Adam Gold for their voiceover work. Thanks also to Tamar Charney and Anya Grunman. And a special thanks to my nephews, Zaid, Taha, and Ali for playing Monopoly with me. This episode was mixed by Josh Newell. Music for this episode was composed by Ramtin and his band, Drop Electric, which includes... Naveed Marvi. Sho Fujiwara. Anya Mizani. Thanks for listening. Support for NPR and the following message come from Edward Jones. What is rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. Edward Jones Financial Advisors are people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.